Let's pray. Father, thank you for the generosity of the saints. Thank you for your your bountiful uh, gifts to us. Thank you for uh, the greatest gift of the spiritual gifts that you give us far far outweigh our material possessions and our uh, money. Father, I thank you for uh, the imperishable inheritance that we receive from you. Father, I pray you bless now these gifts for your ministry in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, we'll be in First Peter again, First Peter 2, beginning in verse 13 this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for adopting us as your children. Thank you for uh, putting us together, knitting us together as a, a holy nation. As we go through this life as uh, what Peter calls strangers and exiles in the world, that it's not our home, we, we eagerly wait for, for that inheritance that you've promised to give us. Uh, you've given us as Christians abundant glory, even though we don't see all of it now. Uh, but let us, let us not see that which you've given us and suppose that we've earned it ourselves and give us the grace we need to humbly and, and willingly submit to those who you have put in authority over us in this world. Father, thank you for giving us the freedom to serve and not to begrudge your, your grace. So by the power of the Holy Spirit now I pray bless the preaching of your word and the sacrament to follow. Nourish the souls of your people this morning to your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we read God's word together. The Apostle tells us, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 2, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is God's word. You may be seated. <coughs> We have an interesting command here, be subject. Yeah, there's there's truth to every stereotype, and maybe you've heard the one that preachers' kids have a hard time with authority. Well, I'm a preacher's kid and a preacher's grandchild, so <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not fond of authority in my nature. But actually, be, this idea of being subject is really something that doesn't come naturally to any of us. It kind of runs against the grain of human nature. And especially, I think, for we who live in the, the land of the free, the, the land of don't tread on me, the, the land of don't, you know, give me liberty or, or give me death. 
be subject is a command that we, we don't naturally gravitate towards. If we were strange enough to write down a list of our favorite commands, <laughs> that one wouldn't be near the top. But that's exactly what Peter here expects of us. He wants us, he says, to be subject to every human institution, even the IRS. But even more confounding in context, I think this command comes on the heels of one of the most glorious passages about the Christian's position in the universe. We have a glorious position. I talked about this last time, but uh, we are God's people. We are members of God's temple. We are God's children. We're slated to receive God's inheritance. We're, We're God's holy nation. We're citizens of a heavenly city that is not the slum that human institutions govern now on earth. So why do we as Christians have to submit to them? We serve the real king. Why do we have to serve the kings of this land which, which is not our home? You know, shouldn't they have to bend the knee to us, the royal sons of God? Why should we be duty-bound to submit ourselves to human institutions when we are the citizens of a heavenly homeland? I think that question is, is the tension which Peter is trying to get at here, which he's trying to resolve for us in these verses. So I want to consider what Paul or Peter has to say here in these verses under four headings. First is the command, the command he gives us. The second is the reason, the reason he, we do the command. Third is the means, or maybe better, even the manner, the manner in which we carry that out. And fourth is the, the summary, he kind of gives us a summary. <coughs> I'll have to pardon my chest cold. So, beginning in verse 13 again, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. So that's the command, be subject to every human institution. Now, to the solution, I think, to the tension that I spoke of earlier is here immediately resolved in the way Peter states this. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. I don't think his use of the word Lord here is coincidental. And he could have said, be subject for God's sake, but there's something about that word Lord that lifts him up as the ultimate authority. I think he does that on purpose. It's as if to say, you you serve these human institutions because you serve the true master. Colossians 3 has a similar thoughts. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Paul says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. So 
he's not saying work hard for men because you'll receive a reward from men. He's saying work hard for men because you will receive a reward from God because you serve the Lord Christ. I think my natural default is the kind of you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back mentality. My attitude toward authority, whether it be employers, police officers, legislators, it tends to be my expenditure of effort is going to is going to directly relate to the degree to which I think you're doing a good job, the degree to which I, you've earned my respect. That's how much I will listen and obey your rules. So, in essence, I submit to myself. As long as your rules go along with my standards and my paradigm I've set up, then I'll listen. Speed limit is 55 here, but I think it should be 65. I'll go 62 or 65. Contrary here to our natural disposition, uh, the apostles here tell us that our submission to authority always serves a higher cause, a higher purpose. So when we submit to people in positions of authority, we do so in service to the one who placed them in that position. Which it means, as he says, we do it for the Lord's sake. This means subjection when we don't agree with them even in the face of great injustice. Peter here continues by describing who it is we submit to. He says it's the highest authority in the land. He says the emperor as supreme, perhaps for us the president. Now I'm always struck by the fact that the emperor as supreme here was Nero. This is a man who used... Christians as human candles for his garden parties? If Peter expects submission from his readers to Nero, surely we can easily, much more easily, obey this command. He also says, Or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So I think kind of in first century terms we think of Caesar as the emperor and then Maybe men like Herod or, you know, Pilate, these governors that were sent to different regions to kind of the boots on the ground guys. Uh, so I kind of think in our system a little bit of a distinction maybe between the legislators, the people who make the laws, and the people who enforce the laws and enact the laws. So um, the legislators versus the cops and the, the DMV lady. <laughs> That's a hard one, isn't it? <laughs> So, in essence, it's, it's not enough to just like, give a, a nod to the great supreme authorities and say, yeah, they're my authorities, but then I reject the authority of the cops and the boots on the ground guys. Mm-hmm. Likewise, you can't say, well, I appreciate the cops, but I, I reject the White House. You can't do that. You have to submit to both because God has put them in those positions. So the one question that always arises, arises in my mind, and I think most, is when we talk about submitting to authorities, when can we engage in civil, civil disobedience? I mean, for example, if we're su- supposed to subject ourselves even to a man of the likes of Nero himself, when is it okay to remove ourselves from that authority? 
And honestly, I don't think we can answer that question this morning. It's a large, tricky, ethical, moral question. I don't feel like I have any profound wisdom to add, but there's a couple of examples in Scripture that may kind of help us a little bit. And in essence, I think the general rule is when the governing authorities edicts go against God edict, God's edicts, we go with God's edicts. For example, Peter tells the Jewish leaders, you know, leaders, they're trying to tell them, don't preach Christ, and, and they preach Christ, and they beat him, and he says, well, we have to listen to God rather than man. Another example is Daniel. Uh, the, the satraps, those leaders, were trying to capture him in something, and, and they couldn't figure out, you know, he was a law-abiding guy, and they couldn't figure out something to, to pigeonhole him with. So they said, what we have to do is find something that pertains to the law of his God. That's where we'll get him. And that's that's what they did. They caught him praying to another God. <coughs> so I don't think that answers the question, but it gets us started. And I think Peter here is kind of, he's addressing one facet of the question, and the, the facet he addresses is, do we who submit to the highest authority in the universe have to also submit and obey to those lowly earthly authorities as well? And of course, the answer is yes, we do. He's simply saying, don't think for a moment because you are children of the great king and judge of the universe that you have license to, to run around like hooligans. And that may strike us as a funny thing to worry about. I don't know if anybody really thinks that way. I don't know of a Christian who, th- who actually thinks, well, I'm free, I, I'm saved, I can do whatever I want. I've never met a Christian like that. But I think it's more of a temptation than we realize, maybe in more subtle ways. Um, so the temptation been very real for me this tax season, for example. Yeah. I, I disagree with a lot of what goes on in the higher-ups. I'd rather give, give money to the church. I'd like to keep it, perhaps, because I work for it. Or speed limits, again, another example, a simple example. <coughs> you know, who, who came up with these things, and what right do they have to tell me how fast to drive? It wasn't God. God didn't come up with the speed limits. Probably some bureaucrat in an office somewhere. Or here's another example that's really hard for me to obey. If, if you go to a state park and, and it's beautiful and there's these ropes and signs that say don't climb on stuff. I mean, this is God's nature. What right do you, a man, have to tell me not to go climb on God's rocks? So those are relatively mild, obvious examples. But I think that the temptation to rebel, and to push back against authorities is very real even for Christians. And Peter's point ultimately is we submit even in the small things for the Lord's sake. <coughs> As I spoke about last time, we're aliens in this world, but we're ambassadors and we represent the King of glory and we represent His glory. So though we disagree with tax systems, speed limits, the stay off signs, we submit for the Lord's sake. Peter goes on here in verse 15 and he gives us um, an explicit reason. So this is the reason heading. 
uh, an answer that he's answering the question here, uh, why submit to human institutions for the Lord's sake? Why should we do that? Verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So the reason is to put to silence ignorance of foolish people. In the Greek here, it's, it's plain to me that verse 15 is a, is a parenthesis, uh, because he, he goes from verse 14, and then he just picks up the sentence again in verse 16. So verse 15 is kind of an explanatory parenthesis. Uh, but it's an important one because he wants us to know why is it that we should do this. So the people of this world will babble on ignorantly in their ignorance of Christianity against God and against Christianity. That's inevitable. But I think the way we interact with that world and their comments influences the impact that those babblings have. So he says, it is God's will or God's desire that his people silence that ignorance by their, their manifest uprightness, their, their, good, their goodness. Here in this context, I think that's primarily talking about obedience to the, the laws of the land and the governmental authorities. But from what I can see, there's kind of two ways in which doing good silences the ignorance of, of fools. <clears throat> The first is you can kind of scoop out their claims. You can hollow them out. You know, if, the, if their claims are false, they don't have any merit. They're just vain, a waste of breath. They can hoot and holler all they want, but a hollow claim is, is, is useless. Uh, from Daniel, again, the same example. It says in Daniel uh, 6.4, <clears throat> Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel, with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or, error or fault was found in him. The same was true, true of Jesus. They tried to find something. They could not find anything. There was no legitimate fault. And so even if they kept talking and talking and talking, their ignorance has been silenced. The second way to... Silence ignorance is to illumine the mind. Ignorance is a void of knowledge. So if you fill that void, ignorance goes away. So some will remain in their ignorance till they die, but some, by the power of the Holy Spirit, may have their hearts and minds illumined. So that's kind of an example of this principle. I work in this park, and there's some renters being generous, a lot of renters that aren't very good renters try to get away with breaking proper or the park rules, they damage their property, they can be uncooperative, don't want to pay rent. Conversely, I live in this park. If I can be a good and a faithful renter, that helps my witness, that helps my truth claims. <clears throat> of course, anybody can be a faithful renter. An atheist can pay rent on time. But we shouldn't damage our witness by being poor citizens. So returning here to verse 15, notice what he says. He says that it's God's will or God's desire. So God's design for the silencing of ignorance is not how we probably would have chosen to do it. You know, a problem that I see, and I've talked about this before in much of Christianity, is we, we want to have an over-realized eschatology. We want to have Christian 
dominion and we want it now. You know, prosperity preachers, these dominion preachers, even like hardcore theonomists, they want that dominion and they want to have it now. I think that's the natural human response. You know, we have this knowledge. We've been told, you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Well, if we are God's people and we are indeed royal, then the way to silence the ignorance of fools is to, to quell the rebellion. Take over the government and, and force everybody to stop blaspheming, right? Amen. <laughs> But Peter does not say take over the world <laughs> to end all blasphemy. What he says, rather, is that it's God's will that you put them to silence via your submission and via your upright living. And to me, that's a comfort. And the reason it's a comfort is because I know that though I want to live in a country governed by Christians and under Christian morals, we're no less victorious even if Nero himself becomes president. The, sex, the success of Christianity is the same whether we occupy highest office or we occupy a Christian ghetto. Whether we hold the, the desirable offices or the undesirable office of, of Christian garden candle. Whatever our plight, God's will is that we silence the babbling of ignorance. And his plan, contrary to human intuition, is the righteous submission of his people to governing authorities. But Peter here again returns to his original sentence now in verse 16. <clears throat> Continuing from verse 13. He's telling us now the manner in which we should submit. Now, what does that submission look like? What is the disposition of the heart and mind as we carry out that submission? So verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So the manner in which we carry that out, that submission out, is as free slaves of God. Free slaves of God. So as I said, verse 15 is a bit of a parenthesis. The, the word live, or some translations say act, is supplied there uh, to make better sense of it. But really the controlling verb for what's going on here in, in 16 is that verb, be subject, in verse 13. So, so the thought is, be subject as people who are free. That's what Peter's saying. Be subject as people who are free. And I kind of belabor that grammatical point because I think it's a, a really strange and wonderful statement. Be subject as people who are free. It's paradoxical and it's wonderful. And it's wonderful because all this talk of submission, it might start causing us to be bummed out because we think we're duty-bound to be, to be indentured servants of, of kings of the world. But Peter says, submit as people who are free. What does that mean? I think it means exactly what he says it means. Submit as free people. So prior to God's causing us to be born again, uh, we, we could not submit to the governing authorities as free people. We didn't really have a choice. 
Either we could submit to the authorities and, as it says, be rewarded as one who does good, or we could be punished as one who does evil. We had no option in the matter. But now as redeemed people who submit to the ultimate Lord, the Lord over all, we can submit to these human institutions voluntarily for the Lord's sake. We desire to serve our Lord well. We want to represent Him well. Earthly authorities are not our ultimate authority, but they are by God's will put there for His purposes. And they're there for our good. So we can happily and readily submit ourselves to them. Not out of a sense of bondage, but of willing freedom. Because we know it is all to God's glory. So we can do it now, freely and voluntarily. And for the natural man, and even the natural man yet within us, it's, it's unbridled personal autonomy that is, is our highest definite definition of freedom. In our nature, we like to think we're God and that we have the right to do whatever we wish. But as Christians, we know, as, as A.T. Robertson says, he says, there is no such thing as absolute freedom, for that is anarchy. Now, the one exception to that rule, of course, is God himself. <clears throat> but even as Christians, we're prone to kind of wander into that anarchist attitude. Uh, Calvin puts it nicely. He says, As men are naturally ingenious in laying hold on what is for their advantage, many at the commencement of the gospel thought that they were free to live only for themselves. This diluted opinion is what Peter corrects by showing briefly how far the liberty of Christians differs from unbridled licentiousness. The wood is a natural material. I'm a woodworker and you can take wood and you can cut it and shape it and bend it however you want, but it's common to say among woodworkers, wood has a mind of its own. You, you see it, and you get it nice and straight, come back the next day and it's twisted. Because wood wants to be wood, it wants to be a tree again. That's how we are, even as Christians, we want to bend back toward our nature. And so we abuse grace. And that's why Peter here warns us, do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. I, I Actually, I love the New King James Version here uh, so much more. It's, it's more beautiful. It says, as free, not using your liberty as a cloak for vice. I mean, if you're translating and cloak is a viable option, you should just use the word cloak. <laughs> but... The point is, we can't claim our Christian liberty as an excuse to do as we wish. Our freedom is not unbridled autonomy. In fact, the whole of our freedom is bound up in the fact that God has made us servants. The whole of our freedom is bound up in the fact that God has made us his servants. So true freedom is slavery to God. Which is why he says, living as servants, or better, it's the Greek word, doulos, which means slaves, living as slaves of God. We have untold freedom in being God's slaves, which is it's hard to understand, but it's critical to understand. And I love this passage here from Edmund Clowney's commentary, and I think it demonstrates uh, really perfectly the distinction between a natural conception of freedom 
and a godly conception of freedom. So I'm going to read this uh, to you. Clowney says, This whole section is in direct antithesis to the spirit of the world, where every individual and group demands its rights, in quotes, and understands liberty as freedom from responsibility. The Apostle describes what is, for our time, a strange liberty. The liberal ideal would be free every individual to do what he wants. If there must be curbs to his freedom, they must be neutral and impersonal. But the liberal can find no ground for his neutrality in his own liberal assumptions. The letter of the law cannot provide neutrality, for on liberal assumptions the language of the law is arbitrary, carrying such meaning as those who assign it. Similarly, if law is viewed as social policy, neutrality is impossible. If if there is no standard for values outside of society, there can be no true liberty in social policy. Peter proclaims liberty in Christ. Because our liberty is under God, there is an objective standard of value. So we have freedom in God precisely because His commandments are objective and true. The whims of fickle men, the ever-changing tides of society, that's true bondage. But as Christians, we are happy slaves of God and thus free to serve human institutions to the best of our ability and to the glory of God. Finally here, we'll wrap up with uh, verse 17, the summary that he gives us. Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I think what Peter doesn't say, or the words he chooses here, is important. He doesn't say, fear the emperor. He says, fear God, honor the emperor. He doesn't say honor the brotherhood. He says love the brotherhood. So I think this verse can help us as we walk through this world trying to figure out how do we relate to the world. It can kind of help us keep our head on straight. So he says honor everyone. Uh, Obviously no person is, is worthy of dishonor. All are made in the image of God. Every person deserves our respect. Which is not easy because we can get caught up in class distinctions, racial distinctions. We can disdain those with different political or religious views and and refuse to honor them as people made in the image of God. We don't have to like everyone or agree with everyone. We don't have to try to level all class distinctions or try to attain that, that liberal ideal of equality. We simply must honor everyone. He says, love the brotherhood. In human relationships, the brotherhood, the church, is ultimate. We are that royal nation, the children of God. We worship God together. We bear up under suffering and persecution together. We join together in doing good. And I think we would do well to think more often of ourselves as a brotherhood. Because the church can too easily become a social club or kind of an institute for Christian learning. But what we truly are is a family. 
even those of different theological persuasions, we are a brotherhood. He says, fear God. Of course, God reigns supreme. His laws, His edicts, His standards of right and wrong are supreme. They are what we follow. Governmental authorities are put in their positions to carry out God's purposes and His justice. And where they hold to that standard, they succeed. And where they fail, they will answer for that. But as God's children, we need not fear His wrath. We stand in a holy reverence before the judge and the king and father. And so we fear God. In contrast, we, he says, honor the emperor. We have seen that our fear of God does not negate our responsibility to be subject to human authority. But as a mere man who occupies an office designed by God with what Romans 13 calls a ministry, we owe him our most sincere honor. So, to close, the question I posed at the beginning of this sermon was, do we who are citizens of the heavenly country who submit to the ultimate Lord need to submit to the authorities of this world? And of course, the answer is yes, for the Lord's sake. We glorify God when we willingly submit to every human institution. In fact, our heavenly citizenship should even really enhance how we act and interact with this world. C.S. Lewis has a great quote that I'll close with on that note. He says, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave this present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Amen. Mm-hmm.